Welcome to the 12th episode of the AMM Dividend Growth Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I'm Glenn Bush, a Portfolio Manager at American Money Management, and I'm the Lead Portfolio Manager for our Dividend Growth Strategy. I thought this episode was going to be about our investment in United Technologies, but a bunch of things have happened this week, so this is going to be a portfolio update episode. Obviously, we have the coronavirus and how we're managing our portfolio to talk about. Uh, we've got Bob Iger, he's out at Disney, and we also have Intuit $7 billion purchase of credit card. But first, the disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Glenn Bush and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of American Money Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor who serves as a portfolio manager to private accounts as well as to a mutual fund. Clients of AMM, Mr. Bush, and employees of AMM and the mutual fund AMM manages may buy or sell investments mentioned without prior notice. This podcast should not be considered investment advice and is for educational purposes only. Originally, this portfolio update episode was just going to kind of cover Disney and Intuit, but given recent market action and the amount of calls we received from clients, I felt like I should talk about our portfolio and how we're managing it as it relates to the coronavirus. Now, a truism about the market is investors pay up for certainty and for that comfortability. But when times are uncertain and the market seems riskier, Investors want more return for their risk before they get back into the market, so stocks have to reprice lower. A common question we get is why not sell now, get out of the way of the uncertainty, and then buy back in when things are back to normal? This is a market timing call. They're asking us to sell positions now, knowing that the market is going to go lower from here, and then to buy back when we know that the market is going to go back up. We can't do that. And I don't know if anyone can reliably do this. You know, sure, some people make a good call every now and then, but can they do it consistently? We don't know if the market will continue to go down from here, and we sure don't know when it will stop and start going back up. What usually happens when we sell into a market decline and into uncertainty is we're selling low, and then when things calm down and things feel better, the market has already moved higher, and we're buying back at higher prices. We're selling low and buying high. That's a recipe for a permanent impairment of capital and complete opposite of the old saying of buy low and sell high. What we do during these times is focus on the things that we can control. We can control how we value a company and we can control our portfolio rules and trading systems. In episode 10, we talked about our systems and how it was forcing us to trim our positions in Apple, Visa, and MasterCard, plus a few other positions that just got too big in client portfolios. Right now, those systematic trades are looking really good. But that was just absolute luck. You know, we had no special insight. It was just our rules. Now, the other thing is heading into this correction, our newer accounts, accounts opened within the last year or so, still had a lot of cash. We weren't going to add positions to their account if we couldn't buy them at a good price. Now, after this quick sell-off, we're relying on our valuation work and our systems again to direct our trading. We have several positions that are trading at prices we would like to buy them at. And as I record this, we've picked up three positions so far. Uh, one of them is, is Visa, you know, which we sold earlier. The sell-off brought it back down to a price where we're willing to pay, and a good amount of new accounts did not have a position in Visa yet, so we initiated a trade. Now, the coronavirus is a perfect reason for this quick sell-off. It's an open-ended risk. Our imagination can run wild with all sorts of doomsday scenarios. And the news is always right there to help us with our imaginations. It doesn't help that our cognitive biases tend to push us to overweight the probability of a doomsday scenario at times like this too. 
Now, I do think it's helpful to kind of talk about some of the spectrum of outcomes that we think are possible. Again, this is just a range and some spectrum. It's, these aren't the hard, fast scenarios that are going to happen. Uh, the first is it really is the zombie apocalypse virus. You know, people lock themselves in their homes. Uh, global supply chain shuts down for a really long time. Businesses suffer. Uh, they start to go bankrupt. People lose their jobs. Uh, people without jobs, you know, real estate drops off because people can't pay the rent or they can't afford their mortgages. Credit spreads blow out and you get a large, long recession. And it's a global one at that. Uh, the second scenario is kind of what we'll call our base case. The virus runs its course over the next quarter. Uh, China's efforts to slow infections and deliver quality medical care work. Uh, China was ill-prepared for this, and there's evidence that they tried to cover up the news that a new virus was spreading before the Chinese New Year. You know, where the virus broke out, the Wuhan province, they were lacking adequate health care and adequate access to health care, and they were lacking the medical supplies to really handle this initial outbreak. China's efforts to ignore the threat and hope it would go away just blew up in their face and kind of blew up in all of our faces, which is why China had to, to respond with this massive containment operation that we've been seeing on the news. Now, there is also some circumstantial evidence that the virus isn't as infectious in warmer climates, so as China and other places warm up, the infection rates drop. Uh, because of the virus and containment operations, China experiences a slowdown. Uh, its PMI just came out in the 30s, and it should show at least a contraction for a quarter or two, which would label it a recession. Now, it takes time to get the factories back up and running. Uh, people are slow to get back to work, and global supply chains are still disrupted and coming back online. Uh, in the meantime, inventories around the world get depleted, and this would probably give way to that global recession. But we think in this scenario, it would be more of a transitory recession like we saw in the early 1990s, uh, especially in the U.S., Unemployment rates don't spike that much, so there's still demand for consumer products, but that demand gets shifted over a couple quarters. And during this time, governments around the world add stimulus through official channels like rate cuts and through unofficial channels like China reducing the down payment necessary to buy an apartment or a house. Then the global supply chain comes back online. Uh, there is extra stimulus in the system. Inventories get rebuilt and consumer purchases pick up again. And you can see a strong recovery out of a transitory recession like this. The best case scenario is like the base case, but the virus gets under control much quicker. Uh, China gets back to work within the next month or so. And even though the virus spreads around the world, governments and their medical systems are prepared, keeping infection rates down and death rates down. You know, we see a short contraction, not really a big recession. Um, companies dependent on travel like airlines will bear the brunt of this. Uh, and again, these aren't the only scenarios. It's just kind of a set of a range of possible outcomes to kind of think about. And the big thing is, it doesn't tell us what the stock market will do. The stock market usually acts in anticipation. So if things start to look like the base case or better, then the stock market would probably react positively ahead of the official numbers. And we do see some good news coming out of this weekend. Uh, infections are slowing down in China. You know, that's if you trust China's numbers. Uh, now that there are infections in other countries with more reliable data, we'll get better picture at the infection rates, the mortality rates, and the time till recovery. Countries and businesses around the world are taking steps to slow down transmissions and break the chain of infections. Uh, some of the stuff may seem like an overreaction, but it's necessary for health organizations to catch up with the virus and get the right systems and practices up and running, and for the businesses to prevent further disruptions to their operations. Uh, the other good news is mortality rates, infection rates, and recovery rates are much better in countries with better access to health care and just better health care in general for its citizens. But... Back to what we're doing. Our job is to invest during times of uncertainty. 
you know, we have to weigh the probabilities of the different scenarios. Our highest weight would be towards the base case. So that's how we'll manage our portfolio going forward. You know, that's until the facts change. You know, we're moving forward, but cautiously. We're staying focused on our evaluations and buying high quality companies where the price makes economic sense. And right as the coronavirus sell-off was picking up steam, Bob Iger had to announce today stepping down as the CEO of Disney immediately. You know, this is not the best time for a company whose business depends on mass amounts of people congregating together and touching the same thing as a thousand other people for their lead CEO and a transformational CEO to step down. Uh, Matthew Ball, whose essays over the years helped influence our thinking on Disney, kind of summed up Iger's sudden step down the best. Uh, this is the 14 month of Bob Iger's 36 month extension, so a little soon. Disney had a great earnings report a few weeks ago, so why not announce at the end of that call? The news of him stepping down would have been blunted by the good news. Uh, as we just said before, this is happening right in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. You know, this is a crisis situation for a company who generates a lot of revenue and profit from theme parks where mass amounts of people congregate and who will likely avoid these theme parks during all this. Uh, Bob Iger also just wrapped up his press uh, tour his, for his book. You know, you think he would have stepped down before the tour to really hype his book and his achievements as a guy who was a weatherman that rose up to become the CEO of Disney and really reshaped this old media company for the future. After summing up, Matthew listed three possible explanations for the random Tuesday step down. Uh, one, it's a scandal. Uh, two, health issues. Three, he's running for president. Uh, for number one, I don't think it's a scandal. If it's a Me Too type of scandal, I think this would have come out already. Now, it could have just happened, but I still think it would have come to the surface relatively quickly. Plus, Bob is remaining the chairman of Disney and overseeing its creative endeavors. Why would Disney keep such a close relationship with someone caught up in a scandal that tarnishes Disney's family brand? Uh, Bob also mentioned way back that he would like to run for president, but it's too late for this election. And Bob doesn't have Bloomberg's money to start this late and spend his way to national prominence. Also, Bob is a good long-term strategic thinker. I think after seeing what happened to Howard Schultz, Tom Steyer, and the backlash against Bloomberg, that Bob may wait for a better opportunity to get into politics, if at all. Sadly, I think the most likely of the three would be health issues. Again, nothing has been leaked, so hopefully that is not the case. Uh, a fourth idea and the most bland one was maybe Bob and the board were waiting to finalize Chapik as a new CEO. Iger was going to retire years ago, but without a suitable replacement, he stayed on, which turned out to be a really good thing because the company needed him for a couple more years to finish putting all the pieces into place for this future streaming world that Disney is entering. And so they're just waiting for the best successor to take over all that. Now with Chapik in position and the company set up for success, Bob was ready to step down. And the timing, though random, was just when everything was in place and Disney was ready to name the successor. Now, a late Friday news drop would have been way more suspicious. Uh, and Bob's not going away. Like we said, he will be helping Chappick over the next year with the transition, and he will focus on the area that he loves, the, the creative side. And he gets to continue to oversee his major acquisitions. You know, he gets to oversee his legacy. But of course, the market reacts negatively to a strong leader stepping down. But again, Disney is really in a strong position. Uh, Chappick just has to manage it effectively for the next few years while he works on and steers Disney through its near and midterm strategic projects. And then he gets to shape and plan Disney's long-term strategic initiatives like Tim Cook did when Steve Jobs died. I do agree with Matthew about Bob's run as CEO. It was an amazing run. 
Uh, he has successfully positioned Disney to grow into the future of media without destroying its current cash cow, its cable affiliate fees. And what its parks business has done during Iger's tenure is just phenomenal too. Now, Bob came to Disney through ABC. Uh, he started ABC as a weatherman. You know, he had the dreams of becoming the next Ron Burgundy, you know, a news anchor. Uh, he quickly changed career paths and went to the corporate route. Uh, then ABC was bought by Capital Cities and Bob stayed with the company. Uh, then he was in position to help Capital Cities slash ABC when it was bought by Disney. Bob became CEO of Disney in 2005. Uh, his first acquisition was Pixar ahead of the boom in digital animation, and he bought the best digital animation studio out there. Now, I'm 40. I don't have kids yet, but I still watch every Pixar movie. Uh, then in 2009, he bought Marvel, which at the time a lot of people thought was a terrible deal because the rights to its most bankable properties, uh, X-Men and Spider-Man, were held at other studios, but given the string of 21 successful Marvel movies, the $22 billion in box office revenue they brought in, and Avengers Endgame bringing in $2.8 billion alone makes the $4 billion for Marvel look like a steal. I mean, that doesn't even include merchandising and everything else tied to the movies. Then there was Lucasfilms for $4 billion, which had the opposite reaction. Everyone thought that was a steal. You know, I thought so too. I still do, even with some of the missteps they took with recent movies. You know, I my own personal opinion, I think they rushed the new saga movies out too quickly without having the overarching story arc in place or, or even stopping to think, should we even continue the Skywalker saga or should we start something else? Rogue One was great because it expanded the Star Wars universe and it answered a lingering question from A New Hope. How did they get the plans to the first Death Star and why did it have this fundamental weakness? Uh, then you have Star Wars Rebels, the first property put out after Disney bought Lucasfilms. And that whole cartoon series is just a masterpiece. And it looks like the Star Wars universe is finding a great new home with Disney+. Plus. So the Lucasfilms division is learning from its mistakes. Uh, then Bob invested in and acquired the rest of BAMTech. It's the most unheralded acquisition of his, but I think it's one of the more crucial ones. You know, BAMTech was needed to build the infrastructure for its OTT dreams. That's Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. And they don't work without the BAMTIC acquisition. And then there is his last and transformative acquisition of Fox. You know, Disney already had a tremendous library, but with Fox, it is now unparalleled. You know, it catapulted Disney right to the top there with Netflix. Disney still makes the bulk of their profits and cash flow from cable affiliate fees. You know, and that was a concern with their business model that cord cutting would really hurt Disney. And it did, and it still is. But Bob has positioned with Disney with all these acquisitions and during, you know, the secular trend of core cutting to be a leader in streaming and by going directly and owning that customer relationship, Disney can monetize that relationship through so many different channels. So Disney, again, has been just positioned really well by Bob Iger. And lastly, we have Intuit's purchase of Credit Karma. Now, I was loosely aware of Credit Karma before this acquisition. I used it a long time ago when it first came out to, like everyone else, get my free credit score. I didn't know its current business model, so when I saw Intuit paid $7 billion for it, my initial reaction was a little bit of a shock. But then I looked into it a little further, and I think they got a good deal. You know, Credit Karma has about 100 million users with a wide range of engaged activity on the site, and most of these users have linked up a lot of financial accounts to Credit Karma so they can monitor their financial lives in real time. Uh, it's estimated that Credit Karma has something like 2,600 plus data points per member, uh, Credit Karma is essentially a lead generator for banks and insurance providers. These companies pay Credit Karma to have their insurance and financial products be shown to Credit Karma's users whenever they request info about credit cards, loans, bank accounts, and insurance. 
The users are high quality leads and the financial product providers will pay up for these leads. And with all the data points Credit Karma has, it can offer its users the best products per their personal info. Uh, Credit Karma's margins are not known. It's a private company. But this is a similar purchase to Mint.com that Intuit made years ago. Uh, Right now, Mint has operating margins around 44%. Uh, Both Credit Karma and Mint have low operating expenses. And as information providers, their cost of goods are predominantly the cost to acquire new customers. So those costs are pretty low. So I think we can assume Credit Karma has a similar margin profile as Mint, and it could even improve more under Intuit. Intuit is paying about $71 per user, and these users, again, are highly engaged with their financial life. These users are very profitable leads to financial product suppliers and to Intuit. Intuit can cross-sell its Mint.com platform, its TurboTax software, and QuickBooks Online to Credit Karma customers, now Intuit customers. And each successful cross-sell increases the lifetime value of the client by a significant amount. Uh, Intuit is also expanding its core products globally, and Credit Karma's business is very easy to expand into new markets. Uh, And I can't end the episode without a little cliche, but data is the new oil. Intuit wants to own the financial data of the best financial consumers, both individuals and small businesses. The Credit Karma acquisition helps Intuit with this goal. That's it for this portfolio update episode. The next one should be about our position in United Technologies. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to catch our next one in United Technologies, then please hit subscribe. And if you have a second, please leave a rating in your favorite podcast player to help others discover this podcast. Until next time.